I'm Kate Tucker, and this is Hope is My Middle Name. You get into the middle of this valley and you look around and nothing around you has been touched by a human being. Nothing. You're hearing Brittany Cummins, and today she's going to take us on a journey. There's no plane in the sky. There's, there's not even a trail outside of, you know, just some game trails that elk have carved into the bottom of this canyon. It is truly just you and nature, and that's about it. You know, you cross over the next pass, and now you're in Antarctica. I mean, it's just snow as far as the eye can possibly see. You're just surrounded by these age-old glaciers. You know, you're looking down because at any moment, there are these crevasses that you kind of have to hop over, but they're these just kind of cuts in these glaciers. They seem to go on infinitely below, but you can hear water rushing underneath them. You look around and you think, maybe 10 people get this view a year, maybe? coming down into what was called Iceberg Pass. And it was one of the most steep and exposed areas that we were gonna go during this time. It's a a smooth sort of rock that you have to kind of shimmy your way down. And it it was terrifying. I remember at one point the mental game got so far beyond my physical game and I just got mind locked in. I can't take another step without really getting myself in trouble. And my hiking partner looks at me and he goes, you got here. Why don't you just take a step back? I'm Kate Tucker, and this is Hope is My Middle Name. As an artist, I've done a ton of different things in my life. I've lived in some crazy places and met some incredible people. For the last few years, I've been living in Nashville, writing songs, touring the country, and making documentaries along the way. And last year, I joined a super awesome startup called Consensus Digital Media, where I get to write and produce some of the stories I've collected. These stories are all about hope. Looking for hope, finding hope, holding on to hope, giving people reasons to hope. So today, we're launching our first podcast. Hope is my middle name. On each episode, we'll be introducing you to some truly inspiring Americans, people whose efforts have sparked incredible innovations, whose communities are solving serious challenges in one of the hardest years of our lives, people who are building a more sustainable future for our country and for the whole world. These are the people who bring us hope. Today, I get to introduce you to Brittany Cummins. Two years ago, Brittany hiked the Appalachian Trail from Springer Mountain in Georgia all the way to Mount Katahdin in Maine. She braved blinding snowstorms, sub-zero temperatures, but the hardest part wasn't the hike itself. 
It was the grief that brought her there in the first place. Well, welcome, Brittany. I'm so glad to talk with you today. I want to start by taking a step back. Could you describe what your life was like six or seven years ago? I was married and had the house that I wanted to live in for the rest of my life. And then about five years ago, it all crumbled away. My husband passed away suddenly, and I was kind of left in the wake to kind of clean up everything that that was left over. Now I have a house that was built for a family that I now have as a single person. You know, what does what what does it look like now that all of your plans had fallen away? Hmm. Where where did you and your husband meet? I worked with his sister and she was convinced that I should meet her stepbrother. And sure enough, we ended up meeting and we ended up hitting it off. And then um, I didn't call him back again. <laughs> and his stepsister was like, listen, can can you at least like call him back? And I was like, fine. And the next thing you know, I agreed to another date. Ah. <laughs> and the rest of it was history. We shut down the restaurant that night and we talked every day since. Hmm. What was your husband's name? Brian. What was he like? What do you think it was that ended up winning you over? He was the laughter in every room. His smile just, I don't think he, he ever figured out how to get it off of his face, right? I mean, he walked in the room with such confidence, but yet humility that he just attracted people to him. I mean, he could talk to just about anyone about anything. I mean, you know, him and I came from two very different worlds. He grew up on Long Island the epitome of suburbia, right? I mean, it's, it's house after house after house. I grew up on a tiny farm in the middle of nowhere, North Dakota. <laughs> there were more people in his county than there were in my entire state. <laughs> and yet, you know, when he came back to North Dakota for the first time, he could sit in a tractor and talk with my brother about what in the world a farmer does. That's so cool. That was just kind of the kind of guy he was. He was so curious um, and he was just just so smart. So you two got married and you were married for about a year? Yeah, so we got married on April 5th of 2014 and on April 23rd of 2015, it, it all ended. Would you... Tell us what you remember about that day or that time. One of the moments that will probably never leave me is one year apart, I walked down the same aisle for very different reasons. Mm. We had gotten married in our church. And, you know, one of the most special moments was before the ceremony started, we held hands around a corner and our pastor prayed with us. The prayer was over and the pastor's like, um, you, 
you gotta let go of his hand. And I just remember telling the pastor, listen, I can't let go. I just, he was such a, a rock to me. And so I'm walking down that aisle and I just want to reunite with his hand again, right? And I just wanted to get back up there and and stand right beside him. And a year later, I'm being asked to walk down that exact same aisle behind his casket. Ugh. The service had ended. They were waiting for me to walk out. And my pastor said, do you want everybody to leave? And I said, yes. Because I couldn't mm-hmm. walk through those people again. I, I didn't want to walk back up it without him there. Still to this day, when I enter my church, I go in on the sides. I just don't want to touch the aisle. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable how impossible to accept the finality of losing someone so close to us. I mean, I I lost my mom a few years ago unexpectedly, and I remember I just— I think that my brain just would not compute the fact that she was gone. And it took so long for me to come to terms with that. But it happens. It's like it takes so long, but it happens in an instant. Like your life changes the moment you hear the sentence. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I when I found out that he had passed, right, I, I was supposed to— He was up at a, on a work trip, and I— was was texting him because I can't remember when I was supposed to pick him up from the airport that day. And I was almost getting annoyed at him because I was like, he's not responding mm-hmm. to me. And I don't know when I'm supposed to go to the airport. And his workplace called my workplace, which was very weird to begin with. I didn't I didn't know why they did that. And so I actually took took the call in my boss's office just to get some privacy. And as soon as I took the call, Truthfully, my mind goes a little bit blank. I'm not really sure what happened after that. Brian was an emotional guy, right? He, he'd kill me for telling you that, but he, he cried more often than I did, probably times 10. And every time he <laughs> cried, he'd look at me and he'd say, I promise it's just allergies, right? And it was, <laughs> I'd laugh at it every time. I'm like, right, your allergies only act up <laughs> when something is wrong. <laughs> it's not even springtime. Psychosomatic. Exactly. <laughs> he's he's allergic to sadness, basically. I was, you know, waiting in the restroom before the funeral began, and um, one of his coworkers walked in. And she had been crying. And, I mean, it's a funeral, right? I mean, what do you expect? I mean, that's, that's kind of what you do. It's almost their purpose. And mm-hmm. she looked at me, and she goes... It's, it's just allergies. I melted in probably the healthiest moment that I had that entire week because all of a sudden I felt this just warmth of comfort where maybe I wasn't alone in this. Hmm. It's amazing those sort of synergistic moments that we experience that take us to those bigger moments. And speaking of bigger moments, I would love to hear about how you went from that bathroom to the Appalachian Trail. (laughs) So I had always wanted to do the Appalachian Trail, depending on which part of the country. It could be Appalachian or Appalachian. 
I'm glad you said that. I actually was confused. Could we just go back to that for a moment for the uh, benefit of everyone listening? Yeah. So for the first half of the trail, while you're in the south, it is called the Appalachian Trail. For the second half of the trail, once you get past the Mesa-Dixon line, it is the Appalachian Trail. Ah, that explains why I used to pronounce it Appalachian. And then I moved to Nashville and then I started pronouncing it Appalachian. (laughs) Yes, so both are correct. Um, Although if you ask a Southerner, both are not correct. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. But I had wanted to do the Appalachian Trail for a very long time. I had actually tried to convince Brian to do it on our honeymoon. And he was like, no, no we have jobs to do. <laughs> and so he uh, he kind of put the kibosh on that. And so we compromised with a 100-mile backpacking trip through the middle of Peru. What a compromise. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that. <laughs> um, I had kind of realized that, you know, so much... After Brian had passed away, I just, you know, I dove into almost anything that would just distract me. So I just decided to kind of take a year and really focus it on me as a person and doing maybe some of the healing that I hadn't given myself the opportunity to do and ended up as part of that process, stepping onto the Appalachian Trail So, you know, I I left on March 4th, which was Brian's birthday. But it it was also, to me, such a a beautiful symbol of what I was trying to accomplish. I mean, it was a March 4th into the next chapter of my life. It was a a way to march forward into what, what does life look like at this point? What does life look like as, you know, a 33 year old widow? Hmm. It's so interesting because to me, I mean, the very act of marching forth in that moment and the maybe the mechanisms by which you were working through grief at the time were, you know, the things you could control. Because when we are in situations that feel so out of control, all we want is one little moment that we feel like we actually have some certainty. Mm-hmm. And so instead of finding that moment of certainty, you basically put yourself at the trailhead of uh, how long of a trail? 2200 <laughs> to be exact. So you're standing at the the beginning of the 2200 mile trail mm-hmm. with all of your grief on your back, but you're completely outside of your life as you've known it. There's this magical thing that happens when you stand on a trailhead. All of those those things that you've been worried about kind of go away because all of a sudden, the only things that matter are food, water, and shelter. I got to that trailhead. It is about 28 degrees outside. It is going between <laughs> sleet and snow. It is wet. <laughs> and at this point, I'm a newbie to the thru-hiking community, and I'm just like, what did I get myself into? And I turn on my phone for what would likely be my last bout of reception for quite a while, and I see a text message from my brother. I thought, oh, he's probably just going to encourage me on the way. It was a picture of my stove, my backpacking stove, and he said, "Uh, did you need this? (laughs) 
Uh, yes, yes, I did. <laughs> Turns out I had forgotten my stove in North Dakota before flying out. Well, now comes the decision point. I can't really get back to a store. You know, I had a car drop me off in the middle of nowhere and that car has since left. So I'm standing here at this trailhead and realize that while it is freezing outside, I have no way to really warm myself up. But the reality is, is you just have to deal with it, right? I mean, like you can't let the fact that you don't have a stove prohibit you from accessing your food. So I started cold soaking my food. And let me tell you, eating cold food when it is 28 degrees outside and you are sleeping outside at 28 degrees is not a fun experience. You really want something warm and cozy and you want a nice hearty soup. And you have a half frozen because it's cold enough where the water is actually crystallizing while it's supposed to be soaking your food so that your food is soft enough to actually consume. So you're eating basically little ice cubes. What a great first day. It really was. It was just really encouraging. (laughs) I was very confident in my skills. (laughs) I was going to ask you the question, knowing what you know now, were you prepared for the journey? But I think I already have the (laughs) (laughs) Nope. (laughs) You know, but my reaction to it was just, it it wasn't the reaction that you'd have in the normal world, right? Like, I mean, I... I forget my lunch at home when I'm in the office and I'm like, good grief, Brittany, what's wrong with you? You've lost your head. (laughs) And my reaction to my brother was, I just texted him back. and was like, yeah, I think you could mail it up ahead. And he was just, we're just going to move forward from here. We're going to, we're going to figure out the answer. And I think that that was one of the reasons why I chose to go through this stage of grief on trail, because I had felt so often that particularly after, after Brian passed, it was this feeling of like, I can't fix this. I can't fix Mm -hmm. the fact that he's not here with me. And I can't fix the fact that I have a house that's seven times too large for me. It felt like the weight of the world couldn't be fixed. Mm -hmm. And what I experienced when I was out backpacking was you can kind of fix everything. I mean, if your tent pole breaks, you're not going to sleep out in the rain that night, right? You're going to figure out a way to fix that tent pole because you can't afford to be without food, water, and shelter. Mm. What was an average day on the trail like? Could you paint us a picture of today on the trail? So my days were all very, very similar. So I'd usually get up around five or 5.30. I set no alarm. I just let my body wake up when it was ready. I'd make some sort of a breakfast, you know, from deciding when to get up to deciding when to eat. All of a sudden, you kind of just start listening to your body, right? I ate when I was hungry. I stopped hiking when my feet hurt too bad to continue on. I went to bed when my body told me that it was time to go to bed and I woke up when it said, okay, I'm ready, let's get up. I'm gonna actually just spend the next four months in a relationship with my own internal pull and push. There were times where I'd get to the middle of the day and I'm just kind of tired. So I'd just pull off to the side of the trail, lay down in the grass, maybe pull out my tent as a pillow and um, just take a nap. Oh my gosh, that is my dream. 
I would never do that in real life. I, I'm working on getting to the point where I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of what the day looked like, you know, it, it was in some ways normal to what a lot of people experience, right? You get up, you get ready in the morning, you pack up your stuff for the day, and then you're kind of out of the house, if you will, for the rest of the day, you're doing your work. In this case, your work is walking 18 to 25 miles a day. You take a lunch break, and then, you know, when it's time for dinner, you stop working and you sit down, you have dinner, you do your errands, you make sure your dishes are washed before you go to bed, you try to brush your teeth unless it's too cold outside and you just don't want to have to do that much work. Um, and then, you know, you go to bed. So it's it's much more normal, I think, than you might assume. I think it's very courageous. You took yourself on a path where you would actually, in a sense, be reconnecting with your body while grieving. Because I think for me, when I was grieving the loss of my mother, the first, like, the beginning of it for me felt so cosmic because I was literally brought into the world by this person. So there was this like cellular experience where it was just like, how can I be here, you know, mm-hmm. biologically, physically without her existing on the same plane? And then there's just this tendency, I think, for many of us when we're grieving to kind of want to numb out or um, ignore the needs of our body. And our body knows best what we need in those moments. Mm-hmm. And to let the grief pass through is such a powerful terrifying but but cathartic experience at least it was for me and so you're out there literally moving your body through all of these extremes in the midst of that yeah you you really are and i mean there's definitely something to connecting the physical to the mental and the emotional right the physical movement has has a power to it you know, i think for me you know one of the extraordinary things about being out there and being in these environments that were, you know, trying and difficult and stretched your parameters was that it did focus you at the end of the day on food, water, and shelter. And then everything beyond food, water, and shelter was something to be grateful for. Now you can start seeing the beauty in everything above it. You know, I was on the Appalachian Trail and it was in the Great Smoky Mountains. And there was this knob called Charlie's Bunyan. It's a very tiny side trail out there. And you go up on top of this, this big rock. And when you climb to the top of it, you look around and you can see the whole world. It's, it's phenomenal on a clear day. Mm. And I had gotten to see it on a clear day when Brian and I had gone down there. And it was just one of my favorite places in the whole entire world. So it's the night before I'm supposed to be able to kind of reach Charlie's Bunyan. So I wake up early the next morning. I poke my head out and it is a whiteout blizzard. I mean, I can hardly see the end of my tent, let alone the end of the earth. So, I mean, my heart just sinks just to the pit. And I'm like, well, I mean, I can't just sit here in a blizzard all day. So I have to hike. And I'm going to have to hike up past Charlie's Bunyan. And um, I get to Charlie's Bunyan and I'm thinking as I'm approaching, I'm like, maybe this blizzard will clear and I'm going to get to be able to see this, this moment that we had shared. Well, I get to Charlie's Bunyan. 
I could hardly see the end of the rock, right? I mean, it is just blizzarding. I probably shouldn't have been up there. It was ice (laughs) from left to right. I mean, it was just, it was treacherous conditions. And I mean, my heart was just kind of breaking. It, It was just, it was devastating to me. There's almost nobody on trail. I mean, I, I am marking fresh footprints in the snow. And I look over on the ridge and you can see the storm receding and you can see the crisp outer edges of these evergreen trees just popping through and they're just laced with this gorgeous white snow. Mm. And I remember standing up on this viewpoint and looking at this unbelievable valley below me and thinking, wow, nobody else gets to see this. Only those who had the resilience to hike through this storm Mm -hmm. get to come out on the other side and see this view. Hmm. And it struck me in that moment that that's actually what we all should, should be focused on when we're focused on gratitude. And as soon as I made that switch in my head, that I don't have to be grateful for things, but I can be grateful in those circumstances, all of a sudden my perspective on almost everything that had happened changed. I will never be grateful for the fact that Brian passed away, but I can be grateful in all of the things that I learned as a result of that. I can be grateful in the fact that it motivated me to be able to go on the Appalachian Trail. In the time since, I cannot believe how many people in my family circle, in my friend circle, came to me and could all of a sudden be Mm. vulnerable with me. I was humbled in front of the entire world and I grieved publicly. (laughs) I, I was a mess publicly, but it created a pathway where I could build deeper relationships with people that I really, truly care about and who are really, really important to me. And I don't know that I could have done that other ways. I wonder, did you share um, your experiences with other hikers, your experiences with uh, loss and grief along the trail? Yes. You know, the through hiking community is a very open and vulnerable community in the fact that, listen, if you were going to strap all of your earthly belongings on your back and walk 2,200 miles, like there's probably something wrong with you, right? <laughs> <laughs> like when when everything is beautiful, normal people don't do that. (laughs) Right. It's those things we do under duress. So speaking of resilience, I'd love to hear what it was like when you returned home and you had that sense of achievement, how maybe that whole experience shifted your perspective on loss and also on what you wanted for your future. One of the things that I learned was that I had done a lot more healing than I thought I had done. So to start the Appalachian Trail, if you are a traditional, you know, northbound through hiker, you start just north of Atlanta. So most people are going to fly into the Atlanta airport. And I happened to be flying through the Atlanta airport a year after I finished the Appalachian Trail on the same day that I had started the Appalachian Trail the year before. And I fit in so much better a year later. I was there for work, so I'm walking around the airport, I'm carrying around my roller bag, right? I'm wearing jeans and a sweater. But I was craving to be the anomaly again. One of the things that a lot of the grief books talk about is that when you 
lose a spouse or you go through any major trauma, you might lose 60 to 80% of your friends. It's not because they don't care about you. It's not because they don't love you. It's that your life changed. Mm -hmm. And you might've had a lot of couple friends. The relationship changes when you're only half of a couple. And I think a lot of people who go through divorce um, maybe experience something similar as well. And I really struggled with that because I felt like, you know, here I am. I was 28 when Brian passed away. My friends were either getting married or they were having children. Mm -hmm. And I just wasn't part of that world. And I just craved to be part of it. I wanted to conform. I wanted to be back in that world, back in that zone. And what hiking the Appalachian Trail taught me was that I could be the anomaly. I could be the different one in the crowd. People still welcomed me with open arms. There was still a group there to kind of like be your safety net. You found a sense of belonging in in venturing forth and marching forth. Mm -hmm. How often do you think about your experience on the trail? Um, every day. (laughs) I'm sitting here (laughs) at my at my desk looking up at um, my favorite ridge from the trail, which I have blown up into a massive canvas um, that sits above my desk that I stare at for 10 hours a day. I love that. There is hardly a moment that goes by where I don't think about the trail and about trying to find a way back to it. The power that comes with knowing that you can survive and you can go places and you can see unbelievable sights just by human power is it, it's, it's an incredible place to be. With your own two feet. It's so amazing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's really about all the places you'll go. So where are you going next? What's on the horizon? Oh, gosh. Well, um, my list continues to get ever longer. I have this dream of hopefully in the next year or two, try my hand at the Colorado Trail, which is about 450 miles through Colorado. There's the Continental Divide Trail that goes from Mexico to Canada up through New Mexico. It would hit Wyoming again, go up through Montana until you hit the Canadian border. So I definitely want to hit up that. And once you have the Appalachian Trail and the Continental Divide Trail, there's only one trail left until they call it the Triple Crown, which would be the Pacific Crest Trail. So that I, I would hope to be able to do that shortly after the Continental Divide Trail. And then you'd officially be a quote unquote triple crowner. So I've got a lot of big trail dreams. I was wondering, since Brian became the reason that you set out on March 4th and hiked the trail, and the trail has so informed your life and giving you this freedom, do you still feel connected to Brian when you're hiking? Um... Not as often as I used to. It's become a lot more about me being me. And for me, that was a really healthy step. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love that. I, I would love to know what's giving you reason to hope today. I think one of the things that gives me reason to hope is that there are still things that we can find beautiful common ground on. Mm-hmm. When you are out on trail, Literally nobody knows, nor do they care, what your political persuasion is. Nobody knows, nor do they care, if you grew up rich or poor. It doesn't matter, right? We all strap on a backpack full of items that we've chosen to carry with us. 
and we walk forward. It's just humans out in nature. Just humans. Being alive. Yes. It just gives you so much hope. I love it. Well, thank you so much. This has been just such a wonderful experience to get to hear from you. And thank you, Brittany, for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Hope is My Middle Name is hosted by me, Kate Tucker. This episode was produced by Rachel Swaby and edited by Elise Hugh. Our sound engineer is Mark Bush. Connor Gaughan is the big boss and our champion at Consensus Digital Media. We're a brand new show, so we'd love to know what you think. Subscribe, rate, and review Hope Is My Middle Name on Apple Podcasts. This small act makes a very big difference. You can find me on Instagram at Kate Tucker Music. Hope Is My Middle Name is a podcast by Consensus Digital Media, produced in association with Reasonable Volume. See you next time.